All right, well, let me um, review with you quickly, get us our minds back into Galatians. It won't be as long as our review two weeks ago, but I don't want to lose track of what Paul is trying to do, the arguments that he's making. Uh, you do remember that Paul began by talking about how surprised he was. Uh, he, he said, I marvel that you are so soon abandoning the grace of God, uh, this gospel of God's grace, and then he says, for a perverted version of the gospel that he explains later is based upon obedience to the law, the law of Moses. That's Galatians 1, 1 through 10. And then the first example that he gives uh, to, the, the, to the law that perverts the gospel of grace was you know, Peter's uh, hypocritical adherence to the dietary laws of Israel. And by his actions, the apostle Peter had influenced both Gentile and Jewish Christians that they were obligated to keep this Jewish dietary regulation uh, to which Paul said, this is hypocrisy. And he said, it's not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel. That's Galatians 2, 11 through 14. Can you, just that whole context just amazes me, that Paul would enter into uh, what we might call a fellowship dinner, where everybody's enjoying some food, and then Paul notices, and he, notices, he, and he also knows some of the backstory that Peter was enjoying Gentile food with the Gentiles, but then when Jews came up from Jerusalem, that Peter abandoned the Gentiles, stopped eating un, what, is, what was before unclean food, and now he's eating only what is considered clean food by the Mosaic law. And Paul sees this, and he, he didn't lose it. He was very much in control. But it was just over the issue of food. That is something that we should all think very uh, long and hard about. The, the gospel... The truth of the gospel was at stake over the issue of food, over the issue of food. It's something. And then Paul, after confronting Peter to his face in front of everyone, he goes into his explanation about the true nature of the gospel. And he says that in order for me to live for God, I had to die to the law, Galatians 2, 19. And then in the first section of chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, Paul does a little exercise, uh, if you will, to demonstrate that believers are both saved and they're sanctified through faith and not by works of the law, just as Abraham was saved and sanctified without the law. And he says that only those who believe, as Abraham did, are his spiritual children. And then in the second section, verses 10 through 14, Paul demonstrates that those who take up the law to take up the law for practical justification, that is, for, to be sanctified. He says they must keep the law perfectly, or he says they will be accursed. They will be accursed. And because no one but Christ can keep the law, what does that mean for everybody else? If you're using the law as a means for anything pertaining to the gospel, Paul says you are accursed. And then he says, in fact, Christ had to be cursed in our place so that we could be delivered from the curse. For anyone who hangs on a tree, the law says is cursed. Now, just as a reminder that as we look at the, the, the full context of the book of Galatians, it's essential that we remember that Paul is not addressing how someone is legally justified for salvation. 
These Galatian disciples are not trying to get saved. Okay? They're not trying to get saved by their obedience to the law of Moses. They're already saved. They're trying to be what we might call uh, justified practically for signification. How then do we live after we've come to faith in Christ? And the Judaizers had said, this is how you now live for Christ. You keep the law of Moses. Paul says, no, you are duped into thinking that. That you have any obligation to the law of Moses is an error. So these people were not confused about how to get saved, but how to live for God after salvation. Now in this next section of chapter 3, what Paul is doing is he's, uh, and he's anticipated some arguments that uh, would be brought uh, through this commentary that he's just given by the Judaizers. They're certainly to ask a few questions, and so Paul uh, he wants to just deal with them now. And I think that he can be so preemptive because he's already heard all these questions before as he's preached the gospel. So he's ready with his boxing gloves, or rather he's probably shaken those off and it's just, it's on, okay? He's upset. So let's take a look. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Uh, I'll be reading to you from Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to the end. I wanted to do the whole section today, um, but you probably knew in advance that's not going to happen. Um, I will make it to at least verse 25, and if I'm feeling really good, maybe we'll continue on. But there are some theological concepts at the end that I don't want to just brush over and then have people not really know what, what Paul's talking about. So verse 15 of chapter 3, Paul says, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now, to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, or plural, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgression till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator." Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Let's pray. 
Well, Father, we thank you that because of Christ, we are heirs of the promise of justification by faith, that we stand before you clothed with Christ, as Paul says, in all of his righteousness, and we could not be more legally satisfying to you than that. And Lord, we thank you that because of Christ, by the work of the Holy Spirit, that our lives are practically becoming more and more like Jesus, and that it has nothing to do with the law, which is only bringing a curse upon those who are working it. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand more and more the nature of the gospel, that we would live free from legalism, and that day by day we would just walk by the power of your Spirit. Lord, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, be seated, please. Large section of scripture. It's nice, though, to cling to Paul's argument clear to the end. Or perhaps I just like to listen to him beat down the Judaizers one blow after another. Return to verse 15. And I'd like to read it to you in the NIV just to help clarify some of the statement there. Paul says, brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. Speaking of the covenant between God and Abraham, and of course, and Christ. So Paul is giving an example of a legal document. It's a covenant that, you know, the Gentiles were familiar with in Greek culture. And what was true about that particular kind of covenant is also true of the covenant here that God has made with Abraham, which is this. Once it has been ratified or established between the parties, it is not subject to change. You have to remember that about the covenant with Abraham. It is not subject to change of any kind, okay? Not at all. It cannot be annulled. That is, it can't be set aside as illegitimate. It cannot be ignored, and it cannot be added to. It cannot be added to. I think that's super important because there are some uh, groups within Christianity that think that all of the covenants of the Bible are just stacked on top of one another and added so you have the, 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 the covenants at the beginning of Genesis, Genesis through the uh, Abrahamic covenant and then to the Mosaic covenant, the land covenants, throne covenants, and so forth. We'll talk about all the covenants at another time. And then the new covenant, and they're just stacked on top of one another, and they all have continuity with the next. But Paul says, no, there's no changes to the covenant of Abraham. And the beauty is, is that we're connected to the covenant of Abraham and not the covenant that followed, which was the Mosaic covenant. Okay. We skipped that one, praise God. And we're only connected, as Paul says in Romans chapter 4 as well, that we're connected to this Abrahamic covenant. So here is the, the building of Paul's argument here. He says, uh, verse 16, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. So the, the covenant promises of justification by faith alone. And we're talking about the first one is, is Genesis 12, verse 3. Uh, it's, it comes to its greatest fruition in Genesis 15, verse 6. And then it's repeated again uh, at the end of uh, Genesis 26, verse 4. These were the promises given to Abraham, and it says unto his seed. It, were not to, it was not to Abraham and all of his physical descendants. That's what Paul is clarifying here. It was made between Abraham and to just one of his physical descendants. Now, 
there are promises in Genesis that are made to Abraham and all of his physical descendants. But these particular ones are not. They're just to Abraham and to his one descendant, who is Christ. God promised that in Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And this blessing would be provided through one person. And that would be Jesus, the seed of Abraham, by his atonement on Calvary. And the acquisition of this blessing of justification by faith would come when people believed just as Abraham did in Genesis 15, 6. Now, as we've said before, Paul defends all of his doctrine of justification, which is the crown jewel of Christianity, by the way. He defends all of it based upon that one verse in Genesis 15. Okay? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So all of Romans 3.21 to chapter 5, verse 1 is argued from that one verse. It's pretty amazing, huh? You're tying us to the covenant of Abraham. Yeah. So it has to be clarified, though. Our justification does not come by believing the same thing that Abraham did, but we must exercise the same kind of faith that Abraham did. Okay? The blessing would be provided by Christ, and it would be received by faith in him alone. And as Paul says in verse 15, he says, no one can make any changes to this. This promise, or we might say this covenant promise, he uses them synonymously in verse 15. Uh, 15 and 17. No one can change it, okay? Can't be set aside. No one can alter it by adding to what has been promised. The reason it cannot be annulled or added to is because this covenant promise from God was what we call unilateral and it was unconditional. It was unilateral and unconditional. And when you study the promises of God to Abraham, all of them are unilateral and they're unconditional. It's when you get into the covenant with Moses that it becomes bilateral between two parties and conditional. That is, if you do this, then I will do this. It doesn't happen with Abraham. Okay? They're all God saying, I will, I will, I will, and God doesn't care what Abraham thinks. Neither does he care what Abraham does. Understand that. Okay? It's not how God's promises worked with Abraham. The promise was unilateral by way of God making the promise to Abraham it's without Abraham's consent. It's without Abraham's agreement. Okay? So for the promise to be annulled, it would require that God break his promise to Abraham, okay? which he cannot do. And aren't you glad? If God cannot keep his promises to Abraham, he cannot keep his promises to you and I. Okay? So we're basing our faith upon God's character. Amen? Yeah, his promises. Okay. And the promise was unconditional because God did not say to Abraham, if you do this, then I will do that. He's saying, in this promise, there's no terms, there's no conditions. All the responsibility God places upon himself. All the responsibility. Abraham's just listening. And it's kind of like a, you know, the fire hose thing. He's just saying all this stuff to Abraham. He's like, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And he just keeps going and going and going. It's in Genesis 12, 15, 17, 22, 26. I mean, it's just over and over and over again. Yeah. No terms, no conditions. All the responsibilities on God. Nothing, nothing required of Abraham. So, so what are you saying, Paul? Verse 17. And this I say, or this is what I'm saying, that the law which was 430 years later, cannot annul 
the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. So the argument that Paul was anticipating was this. Paul had argued back in verse 6 that Abraham was justified by faith alone in Genesis 15, 6, and that only those who believe are the spiritual children of Abraham, verse 7, and only those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham, verse 9. But the Judaizers would likely respond by saying, yes, but that was all before the law was given. Abraham was blessed with righteousness before the law was given. Now we must add to faith our obedience to the law of Moses. Justification then, according to the Judaizer, is a combination of faith and works. That's what they were teaching. No, no, that would violate the nature of God's covenant promise to Abraham, which had no conditions, and would mean that the promise of the blessing of justification would be voided. It would be voided. Why is that? Verse 18, because or for if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So the nature of God's promise to Abraham, as we've said, it's unconditional, it's unilateral, but the law is based upon what? It's all conditions. Every bit of it. It's all conditional. You must do this in order for this to happen. If you don't do this, then you will be punished. All of the responsibility is placed on man. The nature of that covenant with Moses is totally different than the covenant made with Abraham. With Abraham, the responsibility falls upon God. I'm making this promise to you, whether you like it or not. But with the children of Israel, all of the responsibility was on them. It's very, very different. And the interesting thing is is that Abraham didn't obey any commands. I've had people say that. Well, Abraham was, was obedient. Have you read Genesis? Which obedience are you talking about? Yeah. And he didn't keep any laws to be justified. How could he, as Paul says, there was no law to keep, not for 430 years. There was zero law, none. God did not say to Abraham, if you obey me, I will justify you. No, God just promised to make Abraham's descendants innumerable like the stars in heaven. That was the promise. And Abraham says, I believe it. And then God accounted to him for righteousness. That's interesting because Abraham didn't even know that faith was a condition for that. God just made the promise, and in Abraham's heart he believed, and he was justified. You know, the gospel works exactly the same way. I know that we have altar calls and invitations and all of that stuff, and we pray with people the sinner's prayer, and we make this big to-do, none of which is ever in the scriptures. Abraham heard the promise and believed it. Same with the gospel. You hear the gospel that the Son of God became a man, died in your place for your sins, rose for your justification, and in your heart you believe. And what happens? The Spirit of God then resides in you, and you're regenerate, and you're declared righteous by God. You belong to Him. Okay, there's no prayer. Uh, There's no, we don't have an altar, guys. This is a stage. Altars are in temples. Okay, this is not a temple. We are the temple of God. And there's no altar here, okay? We believe and we're saved. And then by the Spirit of God, we begin to walk with him and live for him. Declared righteous purely by faith. So here is Paul's point. If the blessing of justification is earned, if the blessing of justification is earned through our obedience to the law, 
it cannot be received through promise. It cannot. But if the blessing of justification is received through promise, it cannot be earned by our obedience to the law. But God gave it through his promise 430 years before any obedience could be applied to the law. And because this kind of covenant cannot be annulled or added to, it was not affected, Paul says, by the giving of the law. So the promise stands. The promise stands. Justification comes through faith in Christ alone. Now, as Paul said earlier, if you're trying to be justified by obedience to law, he says you're under the curse because you cannot keep the law. So if you're trying to inherit the blessing of righteousness by the law, you won't be blessed. You'll be cursed. Now, some people will respond, not necessarily the Judaizers, but today I hear this. They say, in either case, aren't we getting something in exchange for something else, whether it's through obedience to the law or through faith? And wouldn't that make faith a work anyhow? I hear it a lot. Well, first of all, faith was not held out as a condition for Abraham's justification. Okay? God just made a promise and Abraham believed it. God didn't say, if you believe that I will make your descendants like the stars of heaven, then I'll justify you. It wasn't stated that way, was it? God came to him and said, listen, Abraham, I am your exceedingly great reward. I'm your shield. And Abraham said, but God, what will you give me seeing that I go childless? I just said I was your great reward. And then he takes him out and he, he shows him the stars and says, this is how I'm going to make your descendants. If you can number them. And Abraham just believed in his heart. It's amazing. Okay. Second, the answer to the question, isn't faith just another way to work for your justification? since we get something in return for it? Well, no, according to scripture, faith is not a work, and yet it is required for salvation. Paul told the Romans, please listen carefully, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness, Romans 4, 5. Here in the passage, faith is held in contrast to works. He says, he who does not work, but believes, that is, who has faith. They're held in contrast. So faith is not a work. And if that doesn't fit with your theology, you should change your theology so that it agrees with Scripture, and then you'll have right theology. Okay? <laughs> God promised. Abraham believed, and he received the blessing. God offered his son on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. He rose three days later to secure our justification. If you believe that... If you're trusting Christ for that, you are saved. You have received the blessing of justification. But the Judaizers will certainly ask, if the law contributes nothing to our legal or practical righteousness before God, why in the world did God prescribe the law in the first place? I hear that question all the time. So it's not just Judaizers, it's Christians. It's Christians. Why in the world did God prescribe it then? I'm glad you asked. Verse 19, Paul says, what purpose then does the law serve? Well, it was added because of transgressions until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Now, I know what all of that last part means. I just don't know why Paul says it. Okay, so I'm not even going to talk about it. Um, I'll talk about mediators later, but why Paul inserts that parenthetically there is a mystery to me, okay? 
It doesn't, it doesn't change the, the outcome of the interpretation. It's just a note by Paul, and I don't know why it's there. Uh, I've read multiple commentaries about it, and um, it's comforting to know that they're as mystified as I am. So if you have a good answer for that, um, that you think is inspired by God, I'd love to hear it. Uh, but we want to talk about the purpose for which the law was given. Paul says that it was added or given to Israel because of transgressions. Because of transgressions. Now, a transgression is a violation of a known boundary. That's a transgression. It's, a, it's like a trespass. You come to the fence, uh, which I did, hunting, by the way, and where it says no trespassing, uh, it's a good idea not to cross the fence. Okay? And in that part of the country, you better be heavily armed if you do. Okay? Uh, there's consequences to transgressing a known boundary. Okay, that's what a transgression is. In this context, it's a violation of the boundaries set by God, which here is the law of Moses. And so understand, for sin to be a transgression, for sin to be a transgression, there has to be a law in place. Paul says, where there is no law, there is no transgression, Romans 4.15. There is still sin, which means you've missed the mark of righteousness, but though no transgression has been committed. That's probably why, you know, in the whole debacle with Cain and Abel, Abel wasn't executed, or not Abel, but Cain. Cain was not executed. There was no law against murder. It was wrong. It was sinful. There were some natural consequences for it, but I don't know. I kind of feel like he got away with it a little bit, don't you? He was going to be a a wanderer, a vagabond, and and some people would try to, next of kin would try to kill him, but God put a mark on Cain to protect him. And then later, Genesis chapter 9, God said, if man sheds another man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. So he he prescribes capital punishment for murder. But anyway, uh, let's talk about that another time. Uh, Where there is no law, there is no transgression. There is sin. You've missed the mark of what is right, but there's no transgression of a law. According to the Holy Spirit, Romans 2, 14 through 16, and I believe in in good reason, everyone knows right from wrong. Okay, How many of you guys have read, um, I just lost it, this happened to me earlier this morning too, Um, C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, Okay, in his argument there that everybody knows right from wrong, and um, Paul he gets that argument from Romans 2, 14 through 16. We know right from wrong, but the law of God demonstrates that a transgression is directly related to God. A transgression is a sin committed against God himself. The law brought this knowledge to bear on Israel to increase the offensive nature of sin. So the law revealed very clearly that sin does not simply occur on a horizontal basis, Sinning against one another, the law demonstrates that sin is vertical. It's rebellion against heaven. It's rebellion against God. So the law then was never meant to justify or lead us into practical righteousness. The law was intended to condemn. The law was intended to condemn the sinner because of their transgression. But Paul continues to say that God placed an expiration date on the law for those who have trusted in Jesus. Did you see it in the verse? He says that the law was added because of transgression until. It was added for that purpose until the seed should come who is Christ. The coming of Christ, Paul is saying, would expire the law for those who believe. 
very interesting. Paul says the Abrahamic covenant was instituted in such a way that it could not be annulled or added to, but the law of Moses was instituted as a temporary covenant. We might say it was, had, God had planned obsolescence in mind. You guys have heard me talk about planned obsolescence before, right? It's in the appliances of your home. The engineer that made it put a weak spot in there so that it wouldn't live longer than 12 years. Okay, it's planned obsolescence. Well, Paul talks about the weakness of the law in Romans chapter 8, and he talks here about the planned obsolescence regarding the law, saying the law was only good or binding until Christ came. Jesus said, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill, Matthew 5, 17. So God always intended for the law to come to an end, as we see here, and then he made it obsolete, as Hebrews 8, 13 says. The seed has come, who is Christ, and so the law is no longer in effect. Okay, the author of Hebrews, as we were there a few months ago, talks about the life, death, resurrection of Christ, his blood establishing a new covenant to which we belong. We're not a part of the old. Again, the Judaizers would respond by saying, this would make the law contrary to the promises of God. Verse 21 through 22, Paul says, is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So if the law was to be the path of life, it would, he says it would have to be God's law through Moses because his law demands moral perfection. But the problem is, and let's see if I can confirm this with you guys, are we all transgressors of the law? Yeah, yeah. And therefore, obtaining life by means of the law is impossible. It's impossible. Because of our sinfulness, the law only reveals how far short we have come to God's righteous standards. And if we are to acquire this life, it must be obtained on other grounds, on other grounds. We must look back to a time preceding the law when Abraham received the promise so that we understand that righteousness unto life is only and can only be received through faith. It's the only way. Now, this was not uh, plan B for God. You know, if Israel fails to keep the law, then I'll come up with something else. Or, oh no, they failed to keep the law. I better come up with something else. Now, there are people that believe that, but it, it really is crazy if, if, you, if you understand anything about God, okay? Uh, it's not plan B. He has no plan Bs. His promise in Genesis 15 precede and they transcend the law, which was given in Exodus through Deuteronomy. God, you guys understand, he is always intended to save humanity through faith in his son. Some people believe that uh, there was a time when God used the law as a means for salvation. I hear it all the time from people. I read some articles the other day from current theologians that believe that. There is no place in the Bible that says that God temporarily gave the Mosaic Covenant so people could be saved by their obedience to it. It has never been that way. It has always been through faith. God has always been intending to save us by those means. Uh, Revelation 13.8 says that the Lamb of God was slain before the foundations of the world. So before he created us, he knew that he was going to have to save us 
and that it could not be by works, it would have to be by his son. It's always been through his son. The giving of the law was God's gracious way of showing us how ill-equipped we are for righteousness and how great our need is for him to supply that righteousness. That's what the law does. Okay. Yeah. So what other purpose did the law serve? Verse 23, Paul says, But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Now, because the, the definite article comes before the word faith in, in the original language, the translation should read, before this faith came. We're not talking about faith in general. Okay? Paul is talking about the gospel. Okay? You're not referring to what Abraham believed for justification, but what we must believe for justification, which is in, in Christ. And then when Paul says, we were held in custody under the law, he's referring to himself and the Jews because the Jews were the only ones who received the law of Moses. You guys understand that, right? When you read the, the, the narrative of Exodus, only the Jews were at the foot of Mount Sinai, the slaves that he had brought out of Egypt. Uh, our ancestors, they were elsewhere, okay? Uh, most of them in Europe. And that's a long way away from Mount Sinai. Okay, the law was only given to Israel. Paul will address Gentiles in the next chapter and what they were held by, as it were. We'll, we'll get there later, okay? So Paul is talking about himself and the Jews because only they had the law, okay? All other people groups were left to the moral light provided in their conscience. So why did God give the law to Israel? Paul says, to be kept under guard, to be kept under guard. Now, some commentators say, well, the law was there to kind of steer them and show them righteousness and all of that, but that's not what the word here means, to be kept, okay? A Greek scholar, Kenneth Wiest, he clarifies this. He says, the word kept is from the Greek word ferrero, which means to keep in ward under lock and key. He says, the law was a jailer who held in custody those who were subjected to sin in order that they should not escape the consciousness of their sin and their liability to punishment. That's a great way to define the law. He says the law shut them up to one avenue of escape, namely faith in Christ. For during the 1,500 years in which the law was in force, it was the means of convicting sinners of their sins and of causing them to look ahead in faith to the atonement God would someday offer, which would pay for their sins. And then the law was abrogated. As soon as the seed came, the law was canceled. So the law was never a means for justification. Not then, not now. God gave it because of transgression till Christ came. It was given to convict of sin. It was given to destroy moral self-righteousness until the advent of Christ. But there's more. Verse 24. He says, therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. The law was tutor. Now, the King James Version has the word schoolmaster in the place of tutor. Uh, both terms are misleading, okay? Because the original Greek word has nothing to do with the person who teaches, okay? Nothing. Our English word pedagogue comes from this Greek word, okay? The Greek word here, though, is Pedagogos, the meanings are very different. Paul's not referring to a teacher or a tutor, but to a slave. It's a slave 
whose job was to be a guardian, a custodian of a child, the child of his owner. So what we find in, in, in history is that wealthier families owned one of these slaves in order to you know, watch over one of their children from about the ages of 6 to 16. It wasn't their duty to teach the child as it was to escort the child wherever they went and to watch over their behavior. The slave was the child's attendant who would always be with him, okay? looking at their conduct throughout the day and then applying discipline where necessary. Yeah. William Hendrickson says, the discipline which he exercised was often of a severe character so that those who placed under his guardianship would yearn for the day of freedom. That certainly was the case for those who were under the burden of the law of Moses, as Paul will describe later. Now, this illustration has the law of Moses as a guardian for the Israelites, and its job was to lead them to faith in Christ. The purpose of the law was to so convict of sin so the sinner would stop trusting in his own ability to achieve the righteousness that God requires. And in seeing his insufficiency, he would turn to Christ in faith for this righteousness. The Jews, the Israelites, were to be looking forward into the future for the fulfillment of God's promise of a coming Redeemer. Okay? And the law, with its strict demands and its harsh punishment, didn't simply, I believe, attend the sinner to Christ. I believe the law chases the, the sinner to Calvary. Okay? If you understand the true nature of God's law, read Matthew 5. Be therefore perfect, even as the Father in heaven is perfect. I'm looking for another way. Because okay? I know myself way too well. Okay? If perfection is required, uh, I'm going to look for something else. Okay? And so we look for Christ, who is our perfection. So the purpose of the law is to drive the sinner to Christ for justification. But then what? What purpose then does the law serve after someone comes to faith in Christ? Verse 25. Paul says, but after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, a guardian. Are you, are, do you hear that? After faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now, back to the illustration. At about the age 16, the guardian would be relieved of his duties. His job was done. His purpose in life for the child had come to an end. And then he would no longer have jurisdiction over the child, and that child would no longer be under his authority and guardianship. Actually, what would happen, as Paul will talk about in chapter 4, is that slave now becomes subservient to the child because he's the child of the owner of the slave, and now he gets to command his own servant who chased him to Christ, as it were. So as soon as the sinner comes to faith in Christ for justification, Paul is saying there's no longer any purpose for the law. It has completely fulfilled God's intention for it. Now you will hear people today say, oh no, that's not the only purpose. Find me one New Testament passage that gives me different purposes for the law in the context of the faith. There's none. There's none. Just as the child was no longer under the guardian, the believing sinner, having been justified by faith, is no longer under the law. Those who have come to faith in Jesus have been freed from the law. Paul will say that very clearly later about the Galatians. Paul also told the Romans that Christ is the end. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, Romans 10, 4. So the purpose of the law in its totality is terminated through faith in Christ. Okay? Some disagree. One commentator foolishly said, the law leads us to Christ for justification, and then Christ leads us back to the law for sanctification. 
Now, obviously, the text doesn't say that, and it's not stated anywhere in the New Testament because it's the exact heresy that Paul is addressing in this letter. That commentator is saying the very opposite. He's disagreeing with Paul. Yeah, it's crazy. That is something the Judaizers would have said. Yesterday, I read an article from a professor of systematic theology saying that the means of sanctification is the law. But in his, I didn't have time to read it, but I did. In his long explanation, he failed to provide any New Testament evidence for his position. Instead, he turned to the Old Testament to make his case. He turns to the law to make his case for the law. But you guys understand, there is no case to be made from what Paul and the author of Hebrews says is obsolete. You can't make a case from something that has been canceled. It's not there. The blood of Christ canceled out the law, and now we're in a new covenant. I don't think the author of Hebrews could have said that any more clearly. The only means for sanctification, you guys, is the Holy Spirit, as he brings to bear the holiness of Christ in the believer's life. That's it. Now, it doesn't mean that we're somehow permitted to live an immoral lifestyle. How could the Holy Spirit, who is holy morally, lead you into any kind of immorality? The only thing he does is he brings our lives into conformity to Jesus, which is true holiness. That's what he does. Okay? Morality isn't a thing of the past. Those who are in Christ and subject to the Spirit, they will display greater moral character than those under the law. They will. Paul says they must. Paul says that those who are under the law are at a disadvantage because the law provokes sin in us. Romans 7, 8. And then he says to the Corinthians, you want to know what, where sin gets its strength? He says the law. The law. 1 Corinthians 15, 56. You guys know what Paul is talking about. You experience this internally every time you see something that says, don't do this. There's a conflict that goes on within you. Okay? Paul says, by the law is all manner of evil desire. We're sinners, right? The law provokes more rebellion in, in the sin nature. So when you see, don't touch wet paint, your sin nature is driven to test it. Okay? Don't walk on the grass. That's a big military thing. And your sin nature says, but grass was meant to walk on. We do that. Okay? And we're born into it anyway. You know, we're cheaters. We're, we're little thieves. We're selfish. And the law just provokes that in us, as Paul says in Romans chapter 7. So not only has the law been canceled for the believer, it serves as a disadvantage to our sanctification. I believe that anybody says the law is a means to our sanctification is theologically crazy. Okay? That's on tape. Everybody can hear it for the rest of my life. Okay? You cannot find that in the New Testament. Okay? Those who are subject to the Spirit will reflect, interestingly, in their character, the moral nature of God, which happens to be expressed in the law, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. But as soon as you place yourself under the law, you'll quickly lose the reflection of God's character. You'll either become self-righteous or you'll lose all hope. That's what happens. Hopefully, if you go that way, you'll lose all hope and then you'll look to Jesus because that really is the intent of the law. The Pharisees adjusted the law so they could look good. But it's really not living according to the law. But for the rest of us, I pray that you simply live the life of faith, trusting in Jesus for everything and never turning to self-effort to live for God. Okay? Living for him means trusting him. Now, next week, we'll finish the chapter. And, uh, and then sometime in the next chapter, we'll look at the, the, the two covenants primarily. 
I'll mention all of the covenants, but we're going to look at the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And what is very interesting is, is Paul never refers to the covenant of Abraham as old because it still stands. He only refers to the covenant of Moses as old because it's been canceled and made obsolete. We're going to look at the constituents of the covenant. We're going to look at the terms of the covenant. We're going to look at the, um, the, uh, the life of the covenant, the old covenant. And then we'll look at the new covenant, its constituents, its life, and everything else. So I hope that'll be, bring more clarity to Paul's argument. And uh, trust me, we are moving closer to the practical uh, aspects of Galatians, but we need to lay the foundation with the theological. If you have any questions about what I've said today, uh, if I've offended you by calling you crazy because you think that the law is the means of justification, I'd love to chat with you. Um, it is not the means of justifi- or sanctification or justification, but it is worth talking about. And uh, so, yeah, why don't you stand and we'll pray. Are we having any worship afterwards? Okay. All right. All right, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Thank you for using Paul to communicate truth to us, Lord. And Lord, I think more than perhaps any time, any other time in the history of our nation, the truth and clarity of the gospel needs to come out as it seems like now anything will do for the gospel and anything will not do according to the scriptures. Paul said that those that embrace a false gospel are accursed. Lord, we want to understand the gospel in its, in its truth because there's hope in nothing else, Lord. And Lord, also within the gospel, we want to walk in its hope, experiencing its blessing as we surrender our lives to the Spirit and trust and walk by faith, experiencing your life in us, Lord. So Lord, I pray that everyone that's here today, in accord with your word, that we would, through what we understand the gospel to be, that we would humble ourselves and that we would rely upon your spirit and not our self-effort. But Lord, you would bring the change that is needed. So Lord, I thank you for your grace, and I just pray that each and every day, Lord, you'd make us better students of grace, as Paul says in Titus 2. We might walk before you in a way that is worthy of you, that you'd be glorified, Lord, and that people would be blessed. So thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.